continue in worship, I asked if you would uh, turn with me to our scripture reading this morning. We'll be in John chapter 14 for our scripture reading here, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. The gospel, again, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you may know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You join with me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you that we can say that we do know you. That you have revealed yourself to us by your word. That you have made yourself known to us. God, it is a blessing far beyond fathoming that we might know you. We do not deserve to know you. We do not even have the capacity to truly know you, and yet you have given it to us. And Lord, as we spend time in our service this morning, and we've spent time worshiping and praying and reading your word, we pray that you would continue to develop and grow in our hearts a knowledge of you that goes beyond just the intellectual that we would be able to do more than just say the right things and answer the right answers, but that we would know you in our heart of hearts, that we would know you to be true, that we would know your word, that we would have written your word upon our hearts, that our trust would be in you. Lord, there are so many situations in our lives where our trust in you becomes the the only lifeline that we have. You know that there are so many of us that are in various stages of chaos and disorder and frustration and concern and worry and everything that this world would tie us in knots with. Lord, we ask that we would know you. We ask that we would be able to rejoice in you and the salvation that you've given us. And then in the face of the work issues, in the face of the medical diagnoses, in the face of day-to-day life stresses, in the face of trying to raise children and families and putting out fires, whatever it might be, Lord, that our eyes would continue to be turned towards you. With the psalmist, Lord, we say, may the Lord answer us in our day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and may he give us support from Zion. Lord, we know that our hope and our support and our future is in you. 
And we know that we are going to face things in this life that do not seem to be what we want, do not seem to be what we even think that we deserve, Lord, but if we place our trust in you, we know that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you are working these things together. You are working them for a purpose. You are working them for the good of those who would believe in you. May we hold tight to the lifeline that is our trust and our faith in you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that Ed and myself have to go to this preaching conference this week, and we just ask that you would watch over us as we travel and watch over our families as they remain here, keep them safe. And Lord, as we go to this conference, may we come back energized and prepared with tools that would bring glory to your name and be a blessing for our church that we would learn to further rightly handle the truth that you've given us in your word. And Lord, as we worship you in the preaching of your word now, we just ask that you would be glorified, you would be the center and the focus, and that your gospel would ring clearly in the ears of each one who is here. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to broadcast this online and for those who would join with us online. And we ask that you would bring them in among us, that they might be encouraged and they might be able to join in worship, and they may also be motivated to come and join with us in worship in person again as they are able. We know that there are many who join with us in worship out of necessity through online because they cannot join with us in person. But for those who can, we ask that they would be able to join with us and that they would do so. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we are given to worship you and for the blessing of this family to worship you together with it. May we be united in the bonds of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're wanting to get a head start on our passage this morning, you can flip over to the book of Ephesians, as you'd probably imagine. And kind of get your finger in there, and we're, we're going to be in chapter 2. But before we get there, we have some setup to do. All of us at one point in our lives have found ourselves in some kind of academic situation, whether it's primary school or high school or post-secondary or graduate studies, wherever it might be. And as we've spent time in school, all of us probably would have recognized that there's always been special niches for the select gifted students. In the kind of physical education stream, you'd have whatever the school's primary sports team is kind of the, the place of honor, whether in some English classes they have writing clubs, social studies often will be kind of connected with the debate teams, um, sciences obviously have their science fairs. But in an issue kind of as old as our education system, if I were to steal from the PE example, sometimes the, the best grades and the most special of treatment is reserved for the sports teams. If you're in a gym class and the gym teacher, maybe he's the coach, he'll look and he'll go, okay, those are my guys and I make sure they're taken care of. The kind of trope is that 
the quarterback just kind of coasts through gym class and can do no wrong while everyone else continues to run laps, and he just kind of coasts. And it's the kind of thing that if you were not that person in whatever your teacher's class might have been, it really gets under our skin. We, we see this and we cry injustice and outrage. How, how did they get the, the easy treatment? And maybe parents cry out or maybe we cry out and maybe policies change and maybe they don't and things continue on. The problem from our perspective is this idea of preferential treatment. Why are they getting treated differently than everyone else? And what makes it a legitimate problem is that this teacher has a, an obligation both contractually and ethically to treat their students equitably and to be fair across their students, regardless of their connections or their extracurricular activities. You might be kind of wondering where I'm going with this, but in the previous passages we've dealt with man's sinful condition, how man has been reconciled in Christ, death to life, and now we're going to cover another fundamental change that the gospel and the work of Christ has accomplished in Jesus, and that being the reconciliation of the Jew and the Gentile, the grafting in of the Gentiles into God's family. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and who takes no bribe. Repeated in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no partiality. The question that's been asked so many times, and maybe you've wondered this as well, how on earth can the Bible claim that God shows no partiality? We just read Deuteronomy 10, 17, but a few chapters previous, in chapter 7 and verse 6, Moses recorded, you, Israel are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. That sounds a whole lot like partiality or favoritism to our ears. And how can we reconcile these things? There are two key things I want to point out here before we get to our, our main passage in Ephesians. First, I want us to look at God's sovereign choice of Israel that correlates directly across with his divine election of his saints. But God's choice here is not based on man. If God were to look at us, lift the roof of the church and peek in and choose whom he liked more because of whatever it might be, race, color, creed, the righteousness that we show. If God looked in and went, that's a particularly good one. I'm going to save that one. No, not so much. And if he were peeking in and basing his decision on our own merits and what we can do, then we might have to have a different conversation because there God would be showing, I like that one more because of what he has done. It kind of puts man in the driver's seat. But there's a reason why both our passage that we looked at in Deuteronomy as well as Romans 2 
They move from their declarations of the impartiality of God onto His justice and His divine judgment. We're looking at Romans 11 saying God shows no partiality and then we move into for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. If it were based on us, every single one of us would have and have in actuality completely excluded ourselves from the running for God's favor. God doesn't show partiality, choosing based on our merits as people. God is no respecter of persons. No, as he said to Moses in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Among equally qualified peers, and in our situation, among equally unqualified peers, God's mercy and grace as extended to one and not the other is not favoritism. If I were to stand up here this morning, close my eyes, spin around and point at someone in the congregation and say, I'm giving you $100. I'm not showing favoritism because I have had at no point a I'm choosing you because I like you more moment. The difference is God doesn't have to close his eyes to avoid showing partiality. He knows every hair on your head, every sin that you would ever commit, every righteous deed you'd ever do in his name. But being so perfectly just and infinitely above and beyond the affairs of man, God could look and has looked each of us in our eyes and chosen perfectly upon whom he would pour out his mercy and whom he would allow to justly be judged in their sins by him. The second note I wanted to make is to remember that the Old Covenant, the things we read in the Old Testament of our Bibles, the drama played out through Israel's history was designed by God to point to the greater revelation of God in the coming of the Lord Jesus. In all of creation... Out of every nation ever to exist, God reaches out and plucks Israel. And he says, yes, this one will be mine. This nation will be my people. And we know that in some way, every nation, tribe, and people are his because he has created them, he has made them, he owns them, but he chose Israel to be his special people. And he did not do it because of their greatness or because they had earned that position. He did it because they were not great, and he did it for his purpose and for his glory alone. This choice of a no one, nowhere, nothing type nation to become his chosen people would point to the future where in the work of Christ, he would choose out of the nations a new people a people chosen from every corner of the globe, not according to their own works, not that they may boast, but by a work of His own unsearchable and unimpeachable will. God would call out His own people. And even still, that sometimes doesn't sit well with us. Maybe it's our own total inability to be 
truly impartial? Maybe it's because of our own pride as human beings which say each of us deserve God's blessings. But whatever our mental or spiritual blocks are this morning, before we get to our passage, we need to understand that God has chosen His people. He chose them from before the universe was created. He chose Israel from among the nations. And then in Christ, and let each of us praise the Lord for this, He has chosen even among the Gentiles. Now would you join with me in a quick word of prayer as we go into reading our passage this morning. God, as we come to Your Word, we ask that You would reveal it to us that you would make your word clear in our hearts, that we might know you more and that we might see what you have done and glorify you for it. Lord, we pray that you might work in our hearts the peace that comes at the price of the blood of Christ. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through to the beginning of verse, or through to verse 18. Hebrews 2, 11 to 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is God's word. So Paul in Ephesians is writing to a Gentile audience, something worth reminding ourselves of. These were men and women who had likely grown up and almost guaranteed grown up worshiping other gods. And given kind of their location in the world, there's a possibility that some of them may have heard reports of this Yahweh, some national god of a conquered people just to the east around the horn of the Mediterranean Sea. They may have heard of him, they may not have heard of him. And just like he did earlier in chapter 2, Paul does this again, and it's something that is worth recognizing as we come to our God and worship, Paul reminds his audience of their past, where they've come from. At one time, Yahweh was nothing to you. And you were removed from Him. Why? Because you were not of His people. 
He was a God of the Israelites. You were not an Israelite, so he was not your God. He was nothing to you. And that is a problem because he says that this left them without hope and without God in the world. Because Paul recognizes that even though they were far off from the Israelite people, they were not a part of the Israelite people, they still needed that Yahweh, that God of the Israelites. You were Gentiles, and he was the God of the Jews. The Jews called you the uncircumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Really, this is where kind of the rubber meets the road for them. If you live in a massively polytheistic society with more gods than you can shake a stick at, each offering some manner of salvation or damnation, what is one more God to the list? I don't overly care what Yahweh thinks of me because I've got my own pantheon of gods that I'm trying to please and take care of. So here we have just one more to the list. Let the Jews have their Yahweh. And remembering this is Ephesus. They have the great temple of Diana or temple of Artemis, depending on which pantheon you're worshiping from. And even to this day, this, that temple is one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Who cares about this nowhereville Yahweh? But then Paul comes and shares the gospel that you might have your giant temples to your thousands of gods. You may have grown up worshiping these other gods, but all of that means nothing. When the truth was preached and God enlightened their hearts to the truth of this good news, all of a sudden, the luster and the flash of this old way of living turns to ash in the face of this new truth. All of a sudden, your giant temple of Artemis or Diana and your pride in your own pantheon turns to ashes because you realize that those gods were not gods at all and that there is one God. And this God is this God of the Israelite people. But how can these two pantheons that have been at war with each other, how can I be a part of the Israelite people? I am a Gentile and they are Jews and I am not welcome there. So you have these Ephesian converts, and quite often throughout the New Testament, you kind of hear of these God-fears, these people who have come to believe in this God of Israel, but they are still separate. And these Ephesian converts, they would have looked back on kind of their history and where they'd come from with chagrin. I don't know how many of us have grown up actively worshiping other gods, but whether we grew up worshiping Allah or Buddha or even just the modern god of self, I imagine being reminded of our own former life and our own former deception would bring us a measure of 
disappointment in ourselves would humiliate us. How could I be so dumb? How could I be so blind to not have seen the truth? We don't like to be wrong. We don't like wasting time unless it's the intentional time wasting on Netflix or whatever it might be. You want to see how annoyed we get when we waste our time and when we're wrong? Watch one of us turn down a dead-end road. You get to the end of that road, and it's comical, the frustration of, this road doesn't go all the way through. It ends at a slough, and I need to be over on the other side of the slough. And really, all we need to do is just circle back around. It's extra five minutes out of our way, but the frustration is insane. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like to waste time. And more than just being wrong and more than just wasting time, these Ephesians, as well as our former selves, were actively pursuing some manner of false god and heaping up for themselves and for ourselves judgment before the true God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's hard for anyone to say it clearer this morning than what we have before us. The difference between being a Gentile, far off from God, cut off from the hope that God offers, is the blood of Christ. And again, this is not of our own doing that we should boast, but we have been brought near. They have not approached or come near by their own will or volition, but by the blood of Christ they have been brought near. Paul admonished the elders in Ephesus back in Acts chapter 20. He warned them, be, care be careful, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul, when trying to drive home the value of this flock over which God has made themselves overseers, he doesn't appeal to their personal relationships. He doesn't say, pay careful attention to this flock that you are over. Remember that you've got family there. Remember that you've got friends that you've grown up with there. No. He doesn't appear to these personal relationships or anything else. These brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, they were obtained by the blood of Christ. That is why these elders were so strictly warned, pay attention to this flock, because this flock has been bought with a price. And by his blood, these Ephesians enter into the peace with God's people. I think in today's globalistic, individualistic society, I think it's difficult for us to understand the otherness that would have existed between Jews and Gentiles. It's something that is almost without example in our world. The only one that I even begin to be able to think of is North Korea, a nation that has completely isolated itself, cut itself off and says, we are our own people, they are outside. And in a negative light, they have made themselves set apart. 
But God had set his people apart, the people of Israel. And we have very little frame of reference for that because we live in a giant melting pot world. We, I mean, all you have to do is look around at our congregation and see that we have people of a whole huge variety of different nationalities represented, both visible and not visible. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what it would be to live in a culture that is so completely set apart. Sherry and I, while we were willing baby to show up, we spent a lot of time in Edmonton and wandering a variety of malls in Edmonton trying to get baby to show up. And obviously, no mall walk in Edmonton would be complete without a visit to the West Edmonton Mall or three visits to the West Edmonton Mall. But one thing I've always loved in the West Edmonton Mall, and particularly if you sit in the food court over by the pirate ship, those of you who've been there know what I'm talking about. If you sit in that food court over by the pirate ship, I love it because I can sit there in about 10 seconds I can get lost in just about every imaginable description of humanity. At any given moment sitting there, I might see people from every single corner of the globe in the span of 30 seconds. I see people that are of every different religion. I eat food from every corner of the globe. That food court has probably a dozen different cuisines in it. And that food may have been prepared by who knows who, who believe who know what, with who knows which manner of ingredients. Going and staying in a city somewhere, I can stay at an Airbnb of someone's house that I have no idea how they've cared for their house or what they've prepared or what, who has been in that house before me share someone's basement. I don't know what they're doing upstairs. But to be an Israelite meant eating food prepared only by your own people. It meant, a lot of times, just preparing the food yourself. It meant refusing to even really associate with people outside of your faith. Refusing to even acknowledge people who were not Jews unless absolutely necessary, and even then, you might find yourself unclean and having to make offerings to that effect. The otherness is without analog in our society. Peter, after his visions in Acts chapter 10, broke all the rules when he goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a God-feared. He believed in this Yahweh, but he was a Roman centurion. He was a Gentile. And Peter goes into his house. And he says to them in verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And down in verse 34, Peter begins to preach the gospel, saying, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as if to drive home this message and make it clear, because 
There was a group of Jews there with Peter. They understood and they were watching what's going on as if to kind of put a stamp and a seal on it, be like, you wonder how God feels about this? These Gentile God-fearers were obviously granted the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this served as a total affirmation from God of what Peter was saying, that all of the sudden, something had switched. All of the sudden, these Gentiles were now allowed to not just be kind of on the fringe, but they were now in. You have to remember that the gift of the Holy Spirit throughout the entire Old Covenant was reserved for the kings of Israel, was reserved for the prophets of God. Only the most Israelite of Israelite would receive this gift. And yet, even the Gentiles are receiving it now. But this would not be an easy transition. The idea that the Gentiles could be accepted into God's exclusive realm of God's people was totally unthinkable, particularly to the Jews, and even more so that they would be accepted without taking any of the signs of circumcision or participating in any of the various ritual observations as commanded in the Old Testament. But that's exactly what Paul's describing in our passage. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. These two verses, verses 13 and 14, are at the very core of our passage this morning. We need to get this. In verses 11 to 12, we have Paul doing the kind of background, the where they've come from, their separation, their lack of hope. And then in verses 15 to 18, we kind of have the how, how Christ has accomplished this. But if you want to drill down to what Paul wants his people to get, it's right here. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Throughout the Old Testament, you did have examples and commandments for Gentiles, what they would call resident aliens, living amongst the people of Israel. For them to even come close to becoming a part of God's people, they had to be circumcised as adults. They had to follow all the various Jewish laws and customs. And ultimately, they would still be other because they were not a part of the 12 tribes. You're in, but not really. But this distinction was terminated in Christ. There was no longer to be Gentile and then resident alien kind of getting close and then the Jewish people. There was no longer a legal requirement to attain to God's people. No longer these hoops that they had to jump through. In Christ is found the unity of all of God's people. And that is borne out all through Paul's writings. If we're familiar with what Paul had to say. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Here we have the man who was a devout Jewish leader, a Pharisee among Pharisees, who is then converted to become a Christian, a Christ follower, and now he's preaching to the Gentiles. So Paul, in his whole spectrum here, really kind of hits all of the high notes. Most Jewish of Jewish now preaching to the Gentiles, and 
betraying the Pharisees and their understandings. And Paul was burdened by God with a purpose of inviting these ones who were once out to come in. Galatians 6, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same is Lord of same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul describes in our passage how there once was a dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. And when I'm thinking about this dividing wall of hostility, I did some reading and there's likely a very specific barrier that he had in mind. Noted evangelical scholar, the late F.F. Bruce, had this to say. He said, such a vertical barrier stood in the temple precincts in Jerusalem, preventing Gentiles from proceeding from the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, into any of the inner courts. First century Roman Jewish historian Josephus describes this barrier and how it encircled the higher ground which contained the inner courts and had attached to it at intervals notices in both Greek and in Latin warning Gentiles not to proceed any further on pain of death. This was indeed a material barrier keeping the Jews and Gentiles apart. Imagine Cornelius or any of the other Gentile God-fearers convinced of the truth that this Yahweh is the one true God and coming to worship him at the temple and being able to come to the outer courts and being told that's as far as you're allowed to go. You go any farther, we'll kill you. But we all worship the same God. There is a hostility there, even though they worship the same God. The temple the law, circumcision, all of these were enduring reminders that even a believing Gentile would never truly be in. But Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's a reason why when Christ died, the veil in the temple tore in two. Because now there was communion between God and man. Real, true, back and forth communion. But thinking of the way the temples were laid out, Still only the Jews were allowed in the area where there would have been any communion. There was still a wall there saying, Gentiles, you stay out. We're here. So now there's communion between God and his people, the Jews, but 
there's still this wall of hostility between the Jews and Gentiles. And Paul goes on to say, it wasn't just the curtain that was torn. That wall in the temple, that wall now goes away too. For in Christ now there is one man, the man that has followed Christ Jesus. In a sense, the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely the great equalizer of mankind. I can look at every person I have ever met. I can look in the mirror. I can look at my parents, my loved ones, enemies, strangers. It doesn't matter. And I can know that regardless of their ethnicity, upbringing, social caste, failure, successes, righteousness, wickedness, you name it, that I have more in common with them than just being a bearer of the image of God. And that even should be enough. We all are created in the image of God, and that gives us our intrinsic value as human beings. But even more than that, I know that every single one of us, all of us, need to be reconciled to God in one body through the cross, although not all will come. We all need to hear the message that Christ preached, though not all will listen. And in a way, that gospel is summed up in verses 17 and 18 of this morning's passage. And Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, imagining that incredible otherness of being outside of God's people. And now all of the sudden, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul, as the ultimate most Jewish of Jews, most Hebrew among Hebrews, identifies himself with these Gentiles and says, we both have access in one spirit to God the Father. And that's what I'm talking about. And I was talking earlier this morning that there is no partiality in God. Outside of Christ, all are condemned, Jew and Gentile alike. Outside of Christ, there is no hope for anyone. doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you believe. There is no hope apart from Christ. But when the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, when He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, all those whom He had chosen, Jew and Gentile alike, enter by the exact same gate. The one whom Scripture calls the way, the truth, and the life. So when we look around our church, at our church family, we can know that every single one of us here once stood and still stand equally in desperate need for the salvation that comes through Christ alone. We are all on the exact same boat. We all stand in equal need of the saving work of Christ from the moment where 
God enlightens our hearts and draws us unto salvation right through to the very end. If we want to say that we have persevered in the faith, we need Christ to get us there. And that gives us the ground for the love that is supposed to be the hallmark of the Christian community in the church. Like, Think about this. How can an ex-Pharisee who imprisoned and murdered Christians still associate with Jews? How can a Jewish Christian associate with these Gentile believers? They're believers, but they're not really a part of us. How can there be a communion there? How can there be oneness there? How can each of us, looking around this room, how can we have such an obvious love for one another that the world would even take notice, given our incredible differences? I look around this room and see just about every difference you can imagine. Age differences, gender differences, wage differences. We have every difference imaginable in here. How can we have that kind of love for one another? Humans naturally kind of clump up with the people that we know the, know the most and are the most like us. How can we have such love for people who are not like us? And a love that's not just like a, okay, yeah, I tolerate you. But a love so incredible and profound that the world would go, why on earth do they love each other like that? Because in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Our peace with one another, our love for one another, rests on the fact that every single one of us were once far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mentioned it before and I'll mention it again because it's something that has been an incredible encouragement to me throughout my, my Christian walk is I've had the blessing of being in churches in a few churches around the globe. Ed and I had the blessing of being in churches in the Philippines. And as I've been able to travel around, I've gotten to be in a variety of different faith communities of Christians. And every single one of them that I've went to, I've been surrounded by these people who are radically different than me. It doesn't matter whether it's an English-speaking country or a non-English-speaking country. I have been to church services where I didn't understand a single word that was preached because it's being preached in Creole. I don't understand a thing they're saying, and yet I know I'm still part of the community of faith being there amongst those people because these people and myself all with one voice can say we have found our peace in Christ. So it doesn't matter what differences we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one thing definitely in common, and it is the thing that most needs to be held in common. Our highest priority, our deepest love is aligned. 
we have been knitted together into the universal capital C church by Christ who united us one to another by uniting us in himself through his work on the cross. So regardless of our differences and even our difficulties, and that doesn't mean there won't be differences and difficulties. You can read all throughout the New Testament of the difficulties of integrating these people that are so radically different into one community of faith. Those didn't just go away. But Paul, all the way along, is preaching, even through your differences, even through your struggles and your difficulties and your conflicts, the core remains the same. One hope in one Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have faith, and we are saved by grace through faith. And following our passage this morning, and Lord willing, we'll deal with this next week, Paul paints this beautiful picture of the church as the household of God. But for this morning, as the music team comes to lead us in one last song, um, I want us to sing not as solitary voices, but as one body, each voice having been brought near by the blood of Christ who is our peace, and recognize that we are singing together as a family with differences and difficulties, and we will need to be cared for and chastised and exhorted and admonished and encouraged by our brothers and sisters but we all have one hope and one love in Jesus Christ.